Film Society of Lincoln Center. You're listening to The Close-Up. This week we're sharing another highlight from the 55th New York Film Festival. The Meyerowitz Stories, New and Selected, is the latest from writer-director Noah Baumbach, starring Adam Sandler, Ben Stiller, Emma Thompson, and Dustin Hoffman. The film had its U.S. premiere in the festival's main slate and is now streaming on Netflix. During the festival, Baumbach joined IndieWire's Eric Cohn for a free talk in our amphitheater, where he discussed the influence of New York on his work, his approach to comedy, and more. Let's go to that now. Uh, Thank you. So first and foremost, we should be clear that the full title of the movie is The Myrowitz Story is New and Selected. Very important to have the... Yes, uh, yes. Good luck with that. <laughs> but, but, it is, but it is crucial because it points to, you know, the, the story's element is that this is an ensemble piece. And even though there isn't sort of narrative through line, you're seeing the lives of many different New Yorkers kind of united by their family bonds. You're exploring it through different perspectives and, and the kind of chapter titles in the film kind of clue you into it. So just let's start with that. Where, how did the story's concept first come to you? Yeah, well, that was in the early stages when I was writing, kind of trying to write it, writing around it, writing different scenes, and just I just just finding my way into the movie. I think a kind of and and this happens sometimes where the structure, in a way, informs the story, the character. It can, you know it can go the other way too, where the character informs the structure and the story, but that. Uh, and I had some idea of, of that it was like an anthologized collection of short stories by an author. Um, I'd, there was an Updike collection that I had read. It was the, about this family, the Maples. And sort of, I, I'd actually read it a bunch of years ago, but I was sort of thinking about it. And I was thinking there was sort of something moving about this idea um, of these collected stories that followed this family, and they followed the family, sort of the, the couple meeting, growing, getting married, having kids, and it's different than a novel because these were all published at different points in different years, so there's, he didn't necessarily know the ending, and they, they end up breaking up in the, in the book, and it really moved me because I think, in a way, I, that feeling that it wasn't, preordained like it was in a novel that, that when he wrote those early stories that had all the hope that, that, you, know, that you would have you know, in, in real life in a, in a funny way. So I kind of had that in my head that, that, that that's what it was. It didn't, and I kept the concept in the title. In a way, you don't need to know that to, see, you know, to, to, to watch the movie or, or you don't necessarily get that from the movie, but it, it, it was something that cracked it for me and that also informed, I think, also this family, and it's a family, it's a father, played by Dustin Hoffman, who has two sets of you know, kids from two different marriages, and they're grown up, and that kind of compartmentalization of family, how family sometimes, you know, siblings can be kind of kept apart by, you know, have different relationships, but, and they, there's some crossover, but there's also some very different things, and so this, the, by thinking of it that way and by placing one brother in one story and another brother in the other story and keeping them apart till the third story, that gave me a lot. And, and I think after that made all the writing easier. And of course what comes out of this is 
the chemistry between these people is so essential. So when did you start to kind of visualize who these people would be? Because when I look at it, you know, just on paper, Dustin Hoffman is, is the father of Adam Sandler and Ben Stiller. You know, it, all of those people carry, I don't want to say baggage, but connotations. So, you know, how, how, how did that sort of come together for you? Well, I'd, I'd written it with Ben and Adam in mind. I, 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 it, it actually, t two things sort of, which is often the case too, people say like, you know, ask if you can talk about the screenwriting process and often it's like, like a location or something seemingly minor, but it, that, that you're just wedging into, you're just trying to find a reason for it or try to find a way to, because that's what's cinematic, that's what you want to tell. And one thing that I wanted to do in this movie was, was, was write about a hospital, what, it's, what I felt it's like to be in a hospital uh, that I hadn't seen quite in movies before. Um, you know, and, and this personal coming up against the institutional, which you know, we, we deal with all the time in our lives, but when you're in a hospital, you're so, you're just, you know, you're so afraid, you're so vulnerable, you so want to believe that these people will take care of you. And um, that's not dissimilar to how kids feel about their parents and, and that, that need to feel taken care of and that they have your best interest in mind. And um, so that then crossed with talking to Ben Stiller, who I'd worked with before, and Adam Sandler had reached out to me years earlier and asked, just sort of like he'd said, like, if you have something, I'd love to do something with you, which, I, you know, actors do periodically, and often then you approach them a few years later to say, hey, I finally got the thing, and then they'll say, you know, it's a pass, I'm sorry, I just didn't respond to the material, and you're saying, you know, thanks for... What a tease. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> It's, I, I think Hollywood is like is, is, is a place where they make you want something you didn't previously want and then tell you you can't have it. <laughs> um, but Adam <laughs> accepted right away, so it was a great a, a great uh, version of that. But I I had lunch with the two of them before I'd written the script, and we kind of talked about maybe they could play brothers. That might be interesting, and. Um, and also, we, we, we kind of came away from it thinking, well, there should be a physical fight between them. And so that's all I had. There was a physical fight between Adam Sandler and Ben Stiller. I've got to reverse engineer an entire movie <laughs> from that. And then also, uh, I, I knew I wanted to kind of fit the, I had no idea where the hospital would play into it. And again, the short story aspect of it kind of helped me design it. Well, and with somebody like Ben, you know there, there's a, cer a certain kind of kind of bubbling, neurotic character that, that he's played in different ways over the years. With Adam Sandler, it's interesting because people assume he's sort of the, uh, the slapstick comedian, and that is not the character he plays in this movie. So what was it about the, the sort of the, what you've seen him do in the past that inspired you to give him this kind of character? Well, it's interesting, when I, when I first wrote the script and showed it to people, I wrote it very specifically, the Danny character was Adam and the Matthew character was Ben, but I, as soon as I showed it to some people, they, consistently people thought the reverse was the case. If I didn't tell them in advance, they just assumed that Ben was Danny and, and, and Adam was Matthew, and I'd never thought of it the other way. Um, 
I mean, I, I don't feel much, uh, you know, the, the, for me, I just wanted to work with Adam and I thought he could be great at this. I did, wasn't thinking about other people's sort of concepts of him or what they expect or I, I just thought he, you know, certainly things I've seen him do, but I, 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 I thought he'd be very touching as this, as this guy. And, um, and for Ben, it was an opportunity, ha having done two movies together already, I felt where we could do something different too, where that Ben, in a sense, could play something closer to who he really is. I mean, he plays a successful guy in this movie. I mean, at least outwardly successful person in terms of <coughs> what culture would consider successful. And, and As opposed to the failure in Greenberg or something sort of Well, like I think, yeah, I mean, Greenberg in a way was a character very unlike Ben, that Ben found his own kind of personal way in. But he, he, he really transformed for that guy. And then while we're young, for me, was in a way to, uh, kind of way to use Ben, I thought sort of my version of maybe the Ben Stiller iconography of the, you know, the sort of, as you were referring to, the sort of, you know, uh, you know how you describe it, but that, that, you know, that sort of comic character, I wanted to sort of be able to, to, to work that way uh, with him. And this one I thought was a way to kind of strip it all away and have him do something that felt like now the person I know quite well and who's become a friend and, and I so in a way I was writing it more for for him as as the guy I know. And then you have Dustin Hoffman who really has entered cinematic consciousness over the decades as somebody who just tremendous amount of tradition there that you have to deal with. So in some ways, you know, great fit to be a patriarch for all these different people. In other ways, you know, as soon as he's on screen you're thinking, Oh, it's Dustin Hoffman. So. Well, some movies, you know, and, and some of my movies, um, I, I've, I've had this feeling, but I think some movies benefit from, you know, from movie stars, they, from, from people bringing their own associations with these people into the movie, and others don't. I mean, I've made movies, um, uh, you know, Francis Howe or um, Mistress America, where you know, having Candace Bergen come in for a scene or Adam Driver pop up for one moment or something would be, wouldn't be feel right for those movies. With the part of what those movies, I think the spirit of those movies is discovery too and you're seeing people you haven't seen before and how wonderful they are and, 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 um, uh, and this movie I felt could carry the, the kind of weight of what you're talking about. So it wasn't, yeah, it's Dustin Hoffman and it's also Emma Thompson and it's Judd Hirsch and Candace Bergen and Adam Driver and, you know, even Rebecca Miller. I, you know, I, people who, you know, I are, are, I think, you know, bring something, you know, with them into the movie. And, and I, I felt like that's what this movie wanted in, in that way. I mean, Dustin Hoffman, I, is, you know, I got to work with Dustin Hoffman and Randy Newman on this movie, and it's like, you know, that's enough. <laughs> uh, it, uh, You're done. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, you, know, you could, yeah, you could split them into like fourths and spread them out through my entire career, and that'd be amazing. But to have them both fully on one movie, um, it, it was, it was, uh, yeah. I mean, they, they're, they're, they're both people, you know, I loved before I knew them, and so then I'm. You know, I, I with Dustin, 
you know, we, we had to find our way of working together and, um, you know, and I'm also carrying, as everyone is carrying this history, you know, into the relationship, which, um, you know, I, I'm both aware of and putting, you know, in some ways, I guess, bringing into the movie and then also I'm ignoring it on another level because I'm, you know, he and I are creating this guy for this movie only. Well, and, and so something that comes out of this is, you know, you have a body of work too and, and expectations that come out of that. I think of, you know, the, the New York milieu and, and the specific kinds of conundrums that people find themselves in. You know, the, there are ways in which this represents, I think, a, a different sort of context for you in terms of the number of stories that we're processing and so forth. But in other ways, it feels very consistent uh, with a lot of the films that you've been making over the years. And, and I wonder, you know, how much of that plays into to how you think as a, as a storyteller. You know, is this going to be seen as an extension of, of what I've done before? Not really. I, I think, I'm, you know, I'm drawn to, you know, each movie to me is a new experience. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to whatever it is about this story or these people that I'm compelled to tell and, you know, and I'm, you know, what I feel is cinematic and what I'm, and, you know, I'm, you know, I'm consciously pushing or, or trying th things all the time and, you know, trying to do things that scare me and, you know, and, and not, you know, because that's what's fun about it too. But I'm not, I'm not thinking about really what I've done before. Um, uh, it's more something, you know, we can talk about it, I can try and assess it and people can tell me, oh, I saw this and this and this and this, but often I'm not really aware of it. So let's talk about it, because I, I think the New York element is so essential to this movie. And not, it's not just New York, it's a certain echelon of society that you know, has been scrutinized over the, last, over the centuries, really. And I'm sort of curious about what, what is your way into that world? I mean, whether it's Squid and the Whale, or it's uh, Margot, or, any, or, or Francis Ha, it seems like you're, you're sort of dissecting different kind of angles of a, a certain New York ecosystem. Obviously, you live here, so I'm, I'm assuming that's one starting point. But what else about that setting have you found so appealing as a storyteller? Well, I, um, yeah, I mean, the city is, I, I, I grew up in Brooklyn. I, I, I live in Manhattan now. I, I, I have a personal relationship with it. I, not for everything, you know, uh, but for, for, for some of these stories, I like, you know, it's meaningful for me to shoot on a street that I walked on, you know, as a child, you know, if I go back to Brooklyn and I shoot on Montgomery Place where I grew up in Park Slope, I, it's emotional for me. And, it, you know, sometimes Squid and the Whale, obviously, there were biographical elements, so shooting in that area had real meaning and also very, very specific to the you know, the sort of anthropology of that story. Um, but even for the Mistress America, we shot on my old street and had, didn't have anything to do with it. She was, Brooke was tutoring a girl on the street and we just 
I just wanted to go back there and 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 I it was just it brings something it it it, I, it, it brings out something in me uh, that I find meaningful the same way it, it can be to use actors I've worked with for you know before or use friends of mine from childhood you know to put my doorman in a scene I mean it's it's like I. I recognize it and I think in some ways recognizing it helps me then also invent and fictionalize and and um, so you know it's, I find the more I do this I, I mean I've kind of become more conscious of the sort of you know I think this is probably true for a lot of artists in all ways but it's like a conversation I'm having with myself as a child who wanted to make movies who loved movies and so I'm, you know, but in some ways, in terms of the, the, the stories I'm telling or in terms of the psychology of the, the characters and things I'm doing, there's more like, there's, that's one way to do it. But in other ways are, you know, even just for me, you know, I mean, they have to be right for the movie, but it's, it's things that I'm, that just put me in a kind of inventive space, I guess is a way to say it, you know. What, what sort of movies did you see that made you want to be a filmmaker? It, 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 I, in some ways, I think I just watched movies from such a young age on that by the time I wanted to be a filmmaker, I was already just, just immersed in movies. So, um, and it was interesting. When I think about it now, I mean, I, I was, you know, I, we lived in Brooklyn at a different time when, you know, Manhattan seemed like a long way away. You know, you could see it. But I mean, I talk to people, friends of mine, you know, who, I mean, Greta grew up in Sacramento, you know, or, or uh, Wes Anderson grew up in Houston. And I actually r relate to their concepts of New York, even though I was, you know, much closer, but I and it was actually in New York. But I, I felt very far away f from that place. And I think, you know, it also had to do with probably how my parents felt and how, the, the, but there was that, I would go there, we'd have friends in the city, but I, I it, it seemed like a long way away. You know, I mean, it's sort of like what Saturday Night Fever is about. I d didn't dance. <laughs> um, so the cinephilia element kind of came late for you? No, it came, no, it was there. I'm just sort of, I guess, what I was a roundabout way of answering your question, I guess, of saying if I felt both, and I'm sort of equating Manhattan with movies in a way, even though there doesn't have to be that way. But I think what I, I was thinking, I felt so far away from a world where movies were made. So even when I wanted to make movies as a kid, I, I, could, I, I both felt driven to do it. I felt like I thought in terms of movies all the time, but I also felt like I, I, that's not something anybody I know does. And I, I don't even know how you begin to do it. So it, it both felt absolutely possible and absolutely impossible. What, but were there specific films for you that, that were sort of seminal in that regard? Well, I mean, I was, you know, I mean, it's like I was, when I was a kid, to see an R-rated movie was such an amazing thing. I mean, the, when I saw The Jerk, you know, I was, you know, I mean, somebody was asking me this the other day, and I was thinking, I mean, I am as informed by the movies, you know, the, I, it was like things that were forbidden were R-rated movies, and also I couldn't stay up but wasn't allowed to stay up late enough for Saturday Night Live. So when Saturday Night Live people were in R-rated movies and I could start going, that was like I was admitted into a thing. So I loved 
you know, anything with Bill Murray or Steve Martin or Chevy Chase or, you know, and, um, and because I had cinephile parents, I would kind of try to turn this into a kind of auteur thing. So I would pick up on Ivan Reitman and Harold Ramis and John Landis and try to make some kind of argument with my parents about, you know, which people now do seriously, I guess. I, I um, uh, but those movies informed, you know, The Road Warrior was huge for me, 48 hours. I couldn't believe how exciting that movie was when I first saw it. And, um, you know, E.T. was my favorite movie. And, you know, I, um, you know, and like everybody, I mean, I'm the age of Star Wars and, I mean, everybody is, but I was actually, you know, seven when it came out, the first one, and grew up with it. And um, but presumably, you weren't somebody who said that's the kind of film I want to make, or I wouldn't. At that age, that I wanted to make all kinds of movies. I could, you could have said, you know, I wanted to be Steven Spielberg in some way. But I also, when I started to see Woody Allen movies, I obviously I related to that. And then when I got into college and saw Jules and Jim for the first time, I thought, like, holy. Crap, you know, like this is, you know, I, I saw Jules and Jim the same year that Goodfellas came out, and I remember it like blowing my mind seeing that there were connections in the filmmaking, and you know, and, and you know, when I saw After Hours for the first time, you know, like like everybody, you see, you're seeing like you're just the luck of the draw, like it's like who's your James Bond? It's like what was your first Scorsese? You know, I saw, you know, King of Comedy, and then After Hours, and The Color of Money, like those were my Scorsese's and then I of course went back and saw the others but you know I'm also seeing like Broadway Danny Rose and Zelig you know because I just had missed the others and and so those become the ones that you're you know you're really you know connected to and um, and that's why Spielberg was so big for my generation particularly because you could see all those movies you know not Jaws I couldn't see that but I but I you know all the others I could see and they were so meaningful to me. But of that movie Brad generation, you're more of a De Palma guy, right? Well, I've made good, that I'm movie. good friends with Brian, but I, I, those are movies I could not see at that, at that age. I, <laughs> I could not go to Dress to Kill or Blowout. Or I, those I caught later. Um, I think the first Brian movie I saw was maybe Wise Guys, actually, which is a strange one. It's a comedy, but I, I um, then The Untouchables. But I was lucky, he made The Untouchables like right when I could see The Untouchables. Um, and, you know, even though my parents would tell me, like, it's lesser Brian, I was like, <laughs> not in my mind, you know, um, uh, it was great. Um, you know, and I think, for me, all those movies inform what I do. I know, you know, people, you know, I, I, I'm not an obvious genre filmmaker, but I, I, I they're all in there, in, in, in my, in, you know, I see, I see, not necessarily shot for shot, but they're like all of, you know, that influence. I, I, um, I, I actually, a sad anecdote, given what I just heard a little bit ago, but I mean, uh, I remember an interview with Tom Petty where he said, um, they asked him what he was, he was uh, influenced by, and he said, the radio. And uh, that's how I feel, <laughs> I was influenced by movies. And the through line with a lot of what you were citing there, at least to some degree, is comedy. And the films you made, you have not made a humorless film, unless I'm missing something here, and, and one of them is, is funny by accident. But I think they're, they're all supposed to have humor in them. 
And, and I'm sort of curious about that because, you know, a movie like this will be released on Netflix, maybe it'll be categorized as a comedy, but I don't... Yeah, so tell us a little bit about that aspect of, of it, you know, that people have these cleanly defined categories of, you know, this is a comedy, this is a drama, and so forth. You sort of trouble that barrier to some degree. Yeah. Um, I, I think, and, you know, maybe this goes to, you know, how I, you know, going, goes sort of relates to what the, 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 the previous question in terms of movies of my childhood, but I, 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 I do... S some part of me thinks every time I'm making a comedy. Um, and I don't know, maybe I've just have to, it's, it's, it's just some inner working or some, some, some inner workings that I, I just, I can't shake or I'm too scared to tell myself I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna do something serious and meaningful. You know, I think, I, I don't know. But I always think I'm making a comedy. And, and but it's interesting because the underlying premises for all of your movies don't necessarily register as comedies. They could, they could go the other way in somebody else's hand. Sure. Um, but they also could be comedies. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I get asked a lot, like, you know, do you think about the balance between your movies have this sort of, you know, uh, this comedy and drama living side by side kind of thing, and do I think about that consciously? And I, I don't really. I mean, I, I, it's not that I'm not aware of it, or you know, s s certain scenes in a movie seem more serious to me than others. I mean, I, it's it, it, that's true, but I don't. In terms of how I approach dialogue or the way we shoot it, I'm not. You know, I, w w I one thing I um. For Meyerowitz, we, we, I was looking at a lot of Max Opfels movies, and people um, know Max Opfels, who's a German filmmaker, but he, um, uh, just, just amazing, and visually amazing too, and his, you watch these shots, you don't know how he did it, and, um, but I was looking at like movies like The Earrings of Madame Du, uh, or Letter from an Unknown wo Woman, which are not comedies, they're serious movies, but in a way, a lot of the way he approaches it almost feels like they're shot like comedies. They're not that different from how a Lubitsch might shoot something. Like there's a sequence in Madame Du where uh, they're at the opera and she's missing her earring and they're, 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 they, they go in and out of the opera and there's like two guys stand, sitting outside the door and um, they have to keep getting up to open the door, you know, and it's like a way, it's that thing that, you know, when it's done well is so brilliant where it's like you're getting it all from these incidental characters because of them getting up and then getting food and they think he's coming back in and they sit, you know, and it's funny, but it's a very tense, serious moment in the movie, in this marriage. And, um, and I was thinking about that and I thought, in a way, seeing it in somebody else, I could kind of identify it which was you know that that he's kind of consciously or not it feels to me almost like it's shot like a comedy and 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 also there's something about his camera work that's so buoyant that it it kind of lifts up what you know could be very you know kind of serious stuff and so i thought that was interesting and i was interested in 
pushing some of the visual stuff in Meyerowitz and the, the camera work and I, so I was both looking at him for that, but also I, I kind of happened on that observation anyway. Yeah, I want to ask you about that because the, the visual language of comedy doesn't get talked about that much. And maybe you have some ideas about why that is, but I'm also just sort of wondering, you know, how do you map out a movie that, you know, to a large degree we require, we need a lot of, uh, you know, dialogue and so forth in order to sort of orient us. So how do you go about mapping out the way you want a film like this to look, the way, the way it's supposed to move when so much of it is a dialogue-driven experience? Well, it's, I mean, it's different for every movie. I mean, I, I think um, uh, I like shots that, that go on. I like scenes when they can to play in real time and to, for people to, you know, that for cuts to matter, you know? And, um, and so I guess I don't think about it so much in terms of like, visual comedy, but which sort of contradicts what I was saying about the, Mac, the Max Ophuls, but I, you know, but not to worry about that so much. I mean, I think there can be, you know, a kind of visual dialogue that goes, that might seem counter to what's happening. I mean, I, I think of a lot of my dialogue as almost sort of ambient, you know, it's, it's, it, I mean, if you look at the scripts are much longer than than the movies. Like the script for Meyerowitz was 170 something pages, and it's an it's an hour and 50 minutes, which for me is long. I, it was hard for me to get get a movie over 90 minutes until this. But um, but all the scripts, you know, Francis while we're young, uh, Mistress were all like 130 or something, and then there often would come a time when I was editing them where I get to like the hour mark and feel like I hope we have enough material to get to you know full length you know um, uh, because things are people speak over each other things are thrown away the I write it all but it's all kind of meant to be musical in a way and the visual is a kind of way to either counteract that or to, to accompany it or to support it in some way and so it's you know depends on the scene or what we're doing, but that um, uh, you know I like dialogue that's off camera. I like not seeing the person talking. I, you know I, I so you know all of that stuff. Sometimes it's instinctual. Sometimes it's very deliberate. You know, um, but it's why I do a lot of takes also, which um, people talked about. But I you know actors like to jokingly complain about. Um, but because th there's so much choreography involved and there's so many, often I'm covering a lot of ground in one shot, so um, it, 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 there's something that happens often in my movies though where it integrates in such a way that it doesn't necessarily read that way. I think people sometimes are surprised to hear how that I do have shots that go on a long time because I think like you're saying, the sort of dialogue-heavy nature of them is such that people sort of remember that and maybe aren't, you know, experiencing it the same way, which is which is fine too. I mean, in some ways, it's designed for that. And I want to give people a chance to ask questions as well, but uh, before we do that, I, I think it is notable, uh, without digging into it too much, that this movie is being released by Netflix because. Uh, part of the sort of larger narrative of your career, it seems, is that you, you tend to work outside of 
tradition. You're not making big studio movies. Um, and I remember seeing your name pop up in the credits for Madagascar 3 and thinking, oh, it would be really interesting to think about, you know, what would more of your films being made in this context look like? But at the same time, you know, it seems like maybe there is something about the stories you're telling that don't work in, the, in that world, that you have to kind of work on your own terms outside of that. What are, what are your thoughts about kind of the limitations of the studio system? Or, or, well, to be clear, too, this movie was made independently and, and designed to be shown on the big screen as all my movies have been. I mean, we shot it in Super 16, um, uh, and Netflix bought it in post. And, you know, they've been incredibly supportive, but it's, you know, the, the, the movie was made the way all my movies have been made. It's not, there's nothing different there. Um, the, I mean, I, I've, I've worked, I mean, it's a bit longer, bigger conversation, I guess, to talk about like where, what's happened in the studios and what, you know, um, you know, I, another time and, you know, I think, you know, there would be more support in the studio system for what I do, you know, I came of age in this time and I, I um, you know, but I've made, I made Greenberg with Focus when they were part of Universal, or still are, but you know, part of Universal, and I made Margo with Paramount Vantage, which was their art house at the time, and um, you know, so I have done things also, sort of that that originated and stayed within you know a studio system, but you know, I've been lucky that I've controlled all my movies and been able to you know do what I want to do with you know whatever wherever the financing has come from. Um, but, um, you know, I don't, I mean, I, I, up until this point, I haven't, you know, I, I've, I've certainly made movies for less money than I would have liked to have made them because it, it, I, you know, Squid and the Whale, I couldn't get near the budget, what it was budgeted for. And I, at one point I just said, well, I gotta just do this, so just whatever you can get, let's just make it for that. So that was the budget, <laughs> was whatever we could get. And, you know, and with sometimes with something like that, you know, you know, you, necessity becomes the mother of invention. You know, you create a, a style in a way that works both for the movie and also works for you practically. Um, but I haven't needed a ton of money to do what I want to do, and I've been lucky enough, mostly, to get the, enough money, uh, you know, to to do what I want. But I've also done sort of things like Francis, where the whole the whole concept of it was like, what if you and I were just shooting a movie right now? What if we just had a camera? What if this was the movie? You know, in a way, that was the idea. And and thinking, well, with technology now, I really could do that, and. Well, I didn't need to do it that way. I felt like maybe it would open up something and, you know, provide a kind of freedom beyond money or finances even, just a kind of some different way of thinking about how to make a movie. And in some ways it was like a first movie I never made. Um, and it did, it, it really cracked something. And I think that movie, there's a, there's a, there's almost a magic in that movie that's beyond me that came from, I mean, it came from a lot of places, the alchemy of the whole thing and Greta, and, and, but it, it also came from that concept of like, 
you know, let's just not tell anyone we're doing this. And there's gonna be about seven of us and we're gonna do this in black and white and we're gonna shoot it on a Canon 5D, and, but it's gonna be a real movie and it's gonna be as good as anything I would've made any other way. I'm not gonna do this to do some B side, this is gonna be the A side, this is gonna, and that was incredibly liberating and I think informed the movies I made after it that were made you know, back in more sort of traditional ways. You might wanna try it again sometime, right? I'm sure I will, yeah. Could be doing it right now and we wouldn't even know because you do it secretly. No idea. No idea. So let's take some questions from the audience. Yes, sir, in the glass. Um, I saw the film uh, yesterday and I thought it was really terrific. Um, there were a lot of uh, New York institutions in the film, like MoMA and uh, Lenox Hill Hospital. I was just wondering if you had difficulty getting permission to film in these locations. Well, that's an example of something we could not have done on Francis. Um, and again, that, that movie was right for the way we made it, but y yeah, you can't you know, shoot in MoMA for two consecutive nights without people knowing about it. Um, uh, we, it wasn't, I, I mean, I'm trying to think in terms of the difficulty, I mean, uh, you know, the, the challenges were to do things on, on you know, with the, you know, the, the money we had to, to, you know, we had to work it out, but they, they were great. All these places, I mean, MoMA particularly really came through for us and I, I really appreciated it because it, it, it was written as MoMA and it had to be MoMA and really there was no other way to, the iconography of MoMA was so important for that sequence. Um, you know, a retrospective at MoMA is different than some gallery opening downtown, you know? <laughs> and. Uh, so, uh, you know, sometimes like Squid and the Whale was this way too, where you write something in, you know, and that one we had no money and I wrote in the Museum of Natural History, which I was told, oh, you'll never get it. And if I didn't get that, I didn't even have a title for the movie or let alone, and I, um, you know, you find ways and, and, you know, people come through for you and, and you know, it's it's always I'm always really grateful for that because it, um, you know, particularly as you're sort of going back to how you started, you know, when you it's a movie about the city and these places aren't arbitrarily chosen and and you know, it's great when the city comes through for you and you don't feel yeah frustrated. You know, um, you know, sometimes you're you know you're making your you know. You think of your making your ode to your the city you love, and you know you find yourself in traffic or like you know like you know just having a hard time shooting something on the street because everybody's you know no one's the city's not cooperating, and you're like this would be so much easier indoors on a set somewhere, and, you know. Um, but then there are other times when they it comes through, and you feel like you know only in New York, you know, kind of commercial. It's not a bad commercial if you're gonna have one. This gentleman here had his hand up before. All right. Um, recently, I, I watched a very fascinating documentary on Dustin Hoffman that, that I actually recorded on VHS many years before and never got to watch. So, but it was showing his whole career. And as you would know, one of the things he's been very known for is to want to do things his way and to butt heads with the director. And I showed tons of examples. Uh, of course, some of the stuff, best stuff he ever did, was improvised 
probably the best thing was uh, Kramer versus Kramer arguing with Meryl Streep's character and th slams um, his glass one. Yeah, that was 100% improvised, and that's why the fear of Meryl is real. But I'm wondering how much, and he, he's much older now than a lot of the stuff you've shown 45 years ago, you know. What, uh, did you have that experience, and what are your thoughts about the actors uh, injecting or having more rope, so to speak, than others, you know? Well, I, I'm always mildly insulted when people ask me if my movies are improvised. Because um, I, other, sometimes I'm told to take it as a compliment, but I, I think like, I worked hard on this, I've been writing this thing. And, 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 you know, and then you just think all the actors made it up, and that's, you know. I, um, Dustin's actually very articulate about this, and I, if he were here, I would turn it over to him, so I'm gonna be paraphrasing Dustin Hoffman talking about me, which is a terrible <laughs> position to find yourself in. But he was very connected to what, sort of a discovery he, he made, which, in a way, he helped me understand my material better that way, too, is that he was saying how stylized the dialogue is, and that it helped him understand it and, and understand how to play it and also it also I think even helped with the memorization of it because he saw it as musical and and it it's true because it I think there's a there's a kind of version of my movies or at least a kind of feeling of my movies sometimes it seems to be I think that feels sort of there's a a kind of reality to them or something that feels closer. It certainly feels like more closer to human experience or everyday experience maybe than some movies are. But the truth is they're totally artificially constructed. I mean, the, the, the dialogue is all written. The actors, you know, I, I want the actors to do it exactly. You know, it doesn't mean I have, you know, they, they interpret it. I mean, it's, it's, it's their, you know, they're, they're giving it life, but it, it, it's not improvised at all. And it's also very choreographed, so going back to what we were talking about earlier. Um, uh, so I was clear with Dustin, to get to your question, I was clear with Dustin early when we met, you know, that this is how I like to work. You know, he, you know, Adam Sandler would say to me while we were shooting sometimes, we would be, you know, be middle of the night on the street you know, and outside Museum of Modern Art, freezing, and Dustin would have these like long rambling monologues that were most of what he's saying is apropos of nothing, except of whatever's going on in his head. And, and you know, Adam would say like, can you imagine anybody else of his generation, you know, first of all, being able to do this and do, and, and do it so incredibly, but also honestly give a shit to do it. I mean, it's sort of like, I mean, it's a lot of work, and it's hard, you know, it's, it's, it'd be hard for anybody. And he gave me everything, and he, he, he just, I think his understanding was that it was the best way to do it and to play the part and to, and to, was to give over to it. And that, that's what this movie needed, as opposed to, you know, maybe another, you know, experience he might have had on another movie where he felt on some intuitive level that the conflict, that the, you know, the, to improvise, to change, to push back, 
was what that movie needed. But, you know, but at the same time, he always asks, he asks so many questions, he would always push me on the script and say, like, are you sure this is clear? I mean, he's a great storyteller beyond being the actor he is. I mean, I, we were having like dinner about three quarters of the way through the shoot and we had yet to shoot any of the hospital stuff and he said, do you think maybe we need another reference to the Whitney? There's a plot line with the Whitney also. And um, people haven't seen this movie, it's just like a bunch of museums in New York. But it's, it's, it, it, uh, um, not the Guggenheim. <laughs> no, no Guggenheim. No Met Brewer. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, because it comes back at the end. He's like, do you think, it, this is a scene he's not even, in, well, he's in it, but he's not, it's not his character. It's a, it, and, and he was right. And I wrote it in and added it before we shot those things. But he's, he's always seeing the whole movie. And it's, you know, a thing he discovered about this character well, we discovered it together when we were rehearsing, but he was telling me the story of how he sort of figured out Rain Man, of, of sort of what, in some ways, what the story was, because he developed that, you know, that movie. And, and he said, for him, it was realizing it was like Midnight Cowboy, because in both movies, it's the other character's journey. His character's a constant. And that was, Interestingly, I discovered as he told me that story, which I was just interested in hearing just because it's great to hear Dustin Hoffman talk about his movies, but I, I, I realized that that was the story I was telling too, is that his character doesn't change. It's everybody revolving around him and it's their, it's their journey. And I was also thinking though, again, the, the, the sort of guts to do that, you know, when he, you know, so many actors want to have the redemption, you know, and um, you know, I, I, I had so much trouble casting Squid and the Whale because everyone, anyone who wanted to even entertain the, the dad wanted some redemption and, you know, Jeff Daniels was sort of like, you know, didn't care and that's what made him, partly what made him so great in it, but Dustin is the same way, is that he is fine, if it's a character he feels he can play, he's, he, he wants to serve the movie and not you know, some sort of ego trip for him as, as an actor. Let's do one more all the way over here, just not to ignore this side of the room, sorry. Yeah, I'm not. Hi. Um, I was wondering if any of your characters are ever based off of people that you know or your acquaintances and they recognize themselves as these characters, do they ever get angry or what are their reactions and how do you deal with that? <laughs> We're gonna end with that one. <laughs> the juicy one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we should sidebar. I'll, I'll, uh, um, what's interesting is it's often the people who get angry are the people I didn't think I was doing anything. Like I can't believe you know that. Um, yes is the answer. Um, but, you know, I, I think certainly my close friends at this point, um, uh, I actually, I had a friend coming last night to the movie and I, Greta reminded me right before the movie that I had actually taken a couple things from there. Uh, some, just, I mean, things that were true of that they had done or something. And so I called him right before the movie. I was like, I just remembered, I'm sorry, I didn't tell you about this earlier. And, uh, he said, um, 
he's like, at this point, he's like, I expect three or four things of mine to turn up in each of your movies, so um, I'm not surprised, and you know, uh, you know, thanks for the heads up, but that's fine. Um, Who was it? Uh, <laughs> we'll sidebar. Yeah, I, I, um, uh, but, you know, so my friends, I guess, in some ways expect it, but I mean, I would never take anything, you know, I, I don't, that would be private, that was told to me in confidence, you know, it, but, you know, I, I think, you know, the thing that um, Mike Nichols told me, uh, he, I, I met him after I made Squid and the Whale, and he, um, and, and Mike said, like, a great thing about every subject on Earth, so there's like, you could quote Mike Nichols about everything and find the perfect thing to say. He was just so uh, smart that way, and, and he said that, he re that seeing the movie reminded him of why he got into movies in the first place, which was revenge. <laughs> and and I, I, I know what he means, and, and it doesn't mean you're getting someone specific back. It can be revenge on an experience you've had in your life, or, you know, it's like, but there's a, there is, you know, something that, that, that empowers you you know, to, 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 you know, to want to tell these things, you know, this way and use this thing and make sense of it. And, you know, often the things that are really specifically from people have nothing to do with that person. They're just a way to use something that feels real to me that helps me create somebody else. It's like I was talking about, you know, shooting on Montgomery Place in that same way. Um, but, uh, but yeah, people have been furious at me. Well, now everyone has to go see the movie to figure out who you're talking about here. Let the guessing begin. But the film opens in late October, just a couple of weeks from now, in two weeks. So hopefully most of you will get a chance to go see it in the theater. It looks really great on the big screen. So thanks for sticking around. Thanks a lot. The close-up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a non-profit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>